Clearly, if you don't talk about it, it's because you don't know. Otherwise, like, debaters being debaters will want to, like, flex and swing their d- as much as they want to. Cut that out. What is your debating license? I am a debate coach for CHIJ Seneca Secondary School. I am also a debater for NUS, even though I have not attended training in ages. Have they even asked us for like club funds and like club? I mean, you're an exco member, sure you know these uh, things. No. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we're having an exco meeting tonight, so maybe you're having an exco meeting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the club is not dormant. Wow, I'm I'm genuinely surprised. <laughs> yeah, but of course, the meeting is only starting because of money. Like, we are finally getting our subsidy money back. So, NUS, were there other parts to your debating life? When, when did you start debating? Um, I started debating in JC. Um, like, most of my life decisions, I just decided to do it on a whim. Yeah. And I feel so because I thought YOLO since I was extremely, extremely quiet when I was in secondary school. So I thought, ah, what are the chances I'll get in? Nah, I won't get in. So I just went in and... Apparently, you know... You underestimated the desperation of Dunman High debating. <laughs> <laughs> hey! <laughs> but apparently, right, apparently, the reason why I got in, like, apparently I ranked number one in the selections, and they really wanted me because I dissed the Man Club so bad. Apparently, I went in, and one of the questions that they asked me during the interview was, so, debate is a sport that is heavily reliant on good teamwork. So, are you a good team player? And my response was, of course I am, because if I wasn't, I'll be in mind club. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ran one. <laughs> because apparently, three out of four of the panelists were for mind club. And then they revealed it to me, and I was like, oh well, I guess I'm f***ed, I'm not getting in. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my straight ticket to getting in, apparently. I don't know if my performance had much to do with it. Like, did it sway the decision in right way? I don't know. But, I remember very clearly that when I went in, I did not look at the board. So the board was behind me. And after the standard interview questions, they asked me to turn around. So I saw three motions on the board. And I was, debating was completely foreign to me. So I had no idea what a motion looked like and what the format was or anything. So I was so stunned. The first motion was, this house will abolish the death penalty. The second motion was, Something about ASEAN. I can't remember because it was just boring. And the third one was school uniforms. I chose the school uniforms one. <laughs> so that was the very first motion that I did. And I also remember quite fondly that uh, my very first motion that I did when I entered the debate club was this house would abolish the death penalty. Like did a proper speech. And I still remember that I went PM. And because like I didn't know what to like talk about or what a speech was like. I remembered reciting the five pillars of justice taken from Wikipedia <laughs> and reciting <laughs> it with, a, with, <laughs> with an accent, hoping that I would sound smart. That was the very first speech that I gave. And I spoke for two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Still longer than many of my kids. <laughs> but here I am now, so your kids have yes. a future. <laughs> I hope so do too. Well. I hope so too. How is coaching in the age of COVID? I don't coach. Like, the club just died. <laughs> There's nothing at all. Wait, are you coaching uh, then? Not for NG. NG shut down completely. Uh, Huayi is okay with online mm-hmm. training. The, the, the school is okay oh. online training. The kids themselves, I cannot speak for them. Uh, and I know that a lot of other schools have uh, Zoom trainings and other types of trainings as well. I didn't hear anything. No. No training at all. And I don't know how I feel about it because on one hand, I really miss my kids. Hi to my kids if you're listening. But on the other hand, 
I don't know, I guess I have more time to myself. I appreciate it more when I have to study for my exams. But now when everything's over, right. literally everything's over, I have nothing to do. I've been just, because my routine for the last, you know, uh, two years has always involved going to some place in some capacity to coach. And it, it's quite unusual. Like, and not going out of the house, obviously, you, you really miss that environment quite a bit. And I guess when you have, you know, constant exam to work on, it's not, <laughs> it's not as, uh, as bad. But now that that's over, you know, at least, at least, yeah. hopefully by 1st June, everything will, will sort of cleared up. What are you going to be discussing today? I'll be discussing uh, some stuff related to liberalism, communitarianism, and I guess if we have some time, we'll be talking a little bit about law and morality. Okay, so you wanted to talk first about liberalism versus communitarianism. So I, I guess the starting point would be, what is liberalism in terms of how you want kids to understand it? So to make this as straightforward as possible, I'm just going to casually ignore the economic part of yes, classical please. liberalism. <laughs> yes, and just delve into the more common principle arguments that are run by debaters. So this would include um, heavy focus on things like fundamental liberties, uh, right to do whatever. Like, we can just make anything a right, we think about it. Right to internet, right to procreate. And, I mean, these miscellaneous rights. So, will you consider liberalism the study of rights? I guess the more nuanced way of framing this is that rights are like the ticket, like a guaranteeing kind of ticket for you to be able to do something. So, the underlying philosophy here is not so much on liberties per se, but more on um, individualism. Right. The world that's built around the self and how you protect the individual. So, within this frame, there have been a lot of arguments made about a number of different things. I think the most common one that I would hear in debates is that rights are important not just to secure your livelihood, but to secure some kind of higher order desire, dignity or self-actualization, that kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> okay, before I, I delve into like some criticisms of those stock arguments, I just want to point out that I don't see anything that's logically wrong. So like I do believe on a personal level as well as on a professional level as a coach that there is a legitimacy in the argument of dignity, autonomy, and self-actualization. And those are like perfectly legit stuff. But the thing that pisses me off is the way these arguments are executed. Because originally when it started out, so one of the first videos that I watched that taught me about the concept of the self and dignity was Arthur Lee's speech when he was still in WSDC. I was a JC kid. So one of the first few speeches that I watched online was when I think Singapore was going against Pakistan in the semi-finals oh and Arthur Lee delivered. I, I was there. I was actually physically present in at that at that debate. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I was convinced Pakistan won. <laughs> but they got demolished. So you, so the start of my bad judging career <laughs> was probably that Clearly. Moment. <laughs> what uh, what possessed you to think that Pakistan won that round? Okay, it was a unanimous, to be, to, right? To be fair, I was half listening because that day was also the day of I can't remember whether it was cultural night or whether it was some other thing, but I knew that we had closing ceremonies to worry. Oh, okay. So context, I was part of the outcome. Like I was in charge of like making sure events sort of ran smoothly uh, on the ground even though it was my A-level year and that was a bad decision but anyway so while I did get tickets to all of these events uh, a lot of my mind was focused on my phone because there will be texts coming in saying so and so didn't do this you need to do it now and so I had a lot of things on my mind as well which probably contributed to not really listening to the debate anyway <laughs> 
So were you not listening as well when you were judging me at MIS? No, I I did think that JJC won, but I I, I as I told her, you point, did think that Pakistan won as well. You are you are you are listening to a semi final judge at UADCs. So yeah, the semi final judge that defended against six people. <laughs> I think I this is the pinnacle of my coaching, uh, my judging career. I should I should stop now. You know what the well, I still have some credibility, right? Because it's just gonna decrease over the next couple of years. <laughs> But anyway, anyway, so you, you listened to the other speech and you enjoyed it? Yeah, so I think that was the first time I was exposed to a principal argument that was characterized really well. I remember he spent quite a lot of time talking about why dignity was important for politicians. Because I, I think the debate was something about um, the media focusing on politicians' personal lives. Yeah, so he was basically saying that, oh yeah, politicians are also kind of like human beings, just like the rest of us, and then they have this personal sphere of their life that should always be kept private, even though they have signed up to become the leaders of our nation. Yeah, and then like one of the principal arguments that he brought forth was dignity. Right. And even though dignity is usually like tossed around very loosely in many debates, and as a result of that, it only comes out in, in like a one-minute slipshot analysis, um, I think he spent quite a lot of time building that up. And because of that, it left a mark. Huh? It left an impression on me. Yeah. But so, so obviously, the reason why it left a deep impression is because most debaters don't actually follow through with, with this analysis, right? Why is the problem when you don't follow through with proper analysis about dignity or self-actualization? How can these arguments be easily discredited right, in the course of a debate? Oftentimes, it is because people view the argument as a trump card. And as a result of that, they take for granted the need to properly ground that that particular right or that principle in the debate itself. So, like, I told you about how the characterization made by Arthur Lee was really good. It's because dignity as a principle argument alone does not hold water until you talk about politicians and how it's relevant. What's the role of that particular right in this person's life, for instance? Yeah, and I feel like that's severely lacking in a lot of the the speeches that I'm seeing nowadays. What are some of the refutations or the common objections against, you know, this idea of self-actualization or dignity? Okay, without a proper example right now, it's difficult for me to say, but usually I think it centers around two things. One of them would be a competing right. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, rights always conflict, there'll be some other right out there that matters, and then they'll like knife fight on which principles one one. The second one would be pragmatic policy considerations. So like, yeah, I acknowledge that this principle is important, but in the grander scheme of things, there is this. I think to add on, I think what most people do not realize is that self-actualization as a concept that was developed by Maslow is commonly taught in universities for good reason. And it is because there is actually a, a lot of information or some kind of like logical basis for self-actualization that a lot of us who have not read the academic articles are not privy to. So, if you hear things like self-actualization being mentioned in a SSSDC debate, uh, okay, I guess to be reasonable as a judge, you wouldn't expect them to be able to churn out like an academic article. But it's just it just pains me a little bit like, when I'm judging or when I'm watching when people don't fully appreciate the, the breadth of self-actualization. Because on one hand, you can easily say that self-actualization looks like like a gay person coming out of the closet and expressing his sexuality to the whole world. 
and being proud of who he is or she is as a person. That's great and that's empowering. But many people also overlook that self-actualization can manifest in other ways that are far more dangerous. If you think about it, and it is my theory, uh, Hitler could have been self-actualizing as well because he had a very clear vision of what he wanted the society to look like. Perhaps the members of ISIS are also self-actualization in itself, actualizing in their own ways as well. In their twisted minds, they probably are right because they are they have some kind of you know objective or goal that they want to achieve, and they want the ability to reach that objective to feel satisfied. Because I mean, that's the end point. What you know of all these killings, it's not a pragmatic objective. Yeah. So if you think about it, the underlying assumption that a lot of debaters have when they simply run a self-actualization argument is that. The people who deserve to self-actualize in this particular way, they just want to do it to protect themselves because they are vulnerable and they deserve it. But the reality is that as a, a concept, right, and if you extend it to everyone else, it does not always manifest in the same ways. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this delegitimizes the principle, but it's just something that people fail to consider. So when the debate requires you to explain it, they don't. Right, and I think you mentioned to me once before that you have issues with the birth lottery argument as well, right? The birth lottery argument, yeah. Um, okay, I also want to qualify this next thing I'm going to say by acknowledging that the birth lottery is a thing. <laughs> so I will not yes, deny yes, that. Yes. And I do think that it is a legitimate premise to work on. But if the next step of the analysis is simply going to be if people are born unequal, we need to make them equal because they deserve it. I feel like that's a fallacy. And if you think about it, the way in which you want to achieve equality requires inequality. Like, look at affirmative action, look at welfare and and stuff. It requires someone to give in in some way. Yeah, but I think the argument is that you're trying to redress existing inequality, right? So you're making people with more stuff give up stuff to reach an equitable balance. Yeah, but I think the reality is that it's not that simple. Because there are many, many other kinds of like policy considerations if you want to fight for equality. So I guess like one possible example we might want to talk about is the Equal Rights Amendment in the US, which has, by the way, um, been proposed since 1923 or something. But even today, which is like about a century later, it still has not been passed as a constitutional amendment. Has anyone questioned why? Because like if you think about it, the amendment is quite it's quite short. And it's quite simple. It's just a proclamation that everyone should be treated equally regardless of their sex or whatever. Why is it so difficult to pass that amendment even though equality is technically guaranteed under the constitution? Guess what? It's not. So, okay, maybe this is the like law student side of me coming out and talking about stupid technicalities. But but as a principle, as a principle, do you think people should be equal? I think that depends on your definition of equal then. Right. So what, what definitions yeah. are there and in what sense is equality more reasonable? Mm, if you talk about equality of opportunity, I think it's hard to deny that that is important. But if you're talking about equality in all aspects, nah, it's difficult. Like how, how do you determine that? The issue that I have is when people say the birth lottery is the, the, is the problem of the debate and therefore to solve it, we need this ah. policy. Okay. Yeah, then it's shallow. It's lacking. Right, right. So you yeah. mentioned at the beginning that you had some kind of alternative to liberalism. Yeah, now, yeah, now that we have talked about how liberalism kind of 
lacks characterization when it comes out in debates, uh, maybe I would like to um, highlight an alternative model that people don't talk about as much. All right. In fact, which is something that the liberal circuit tends to look down on, which is the idea of communitarianism. Okay. So it is a direct um, contrast to the very indiv- individual-centric nature of liberalism because communitarianism basically entails prioritizing the society over yourself. And in other words, your so-called fundamental liberties and interests are still subordinate to right. um, other kinds of policy considerations. Right. So am I right in saying that in, in liberalism, the basis mm. of power is the self, right, the individual? Yeah. And whereas the basis of of uh, of communitarianism is that society is what's the basic unit. Yeah. Why why then would somebody prefer for society to be the basic unit versus the self? What's the justification for that, and why is it a good thing? Not unexpectedly, it's because of pragmatic considerations, and of course, it would depend on the kind of society that you live in. Uh. Um, I would say even though people have a lot of complaints about Singapore, saying that Singapore should be more liberal, Singapore should repeal 377A, for instance. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're all valid uh, valid things to bring up, but I think we also cannot deny that this model of communitarianism that Singapore has adopted was a pretty effective tool, especially in the early years of our nation building. We We were under an existential threat. And this can be contrasted with the history of the U.S., for instance. The reason why the U.S. is the way it is right now, so like anti-establishment at all, is because uh, they hated the British. And so they created the constitution to be like, let's liberate the sovereign, you know. Yeah, the government must be beholden to the people. And, and like the government, yeah, the government cannot be trusted with too much power. Meanwhile, in Singapore, we're like, all hail Lee Kuan Yew and the PAP because they saved us from the Asian financial crisis and, and why was she? Isn't it weird that, I mean, what what people see as fundamental or basic today, I mean, they were created so long ago with so many other considerations in mind. I I mean, you look at things like the Second Amendment, right? The right to bear arms. And I mean, it's being completely taken out of context, but it's still seen as fundamental today. Even under a completely different context, is that is that the problem with liberalism? Uh, with liberalism, that insofar as the context has changed, liberalism enshrines values or rights that don't quite apply anymore to the society that we are living in. Why do you say it's not applicable anymore? I mean, the right to bear arms. I mean, that was necessity for a militia, right, to keep the government in yeah. check. That doesn't seem like it's very practical in American society mm. today. Anyway, it's not used for that purpose. It's used to. As, as a means of self-defense, right? Uh, or at least that's what, that's what they claim that it's meant to achieve, lah, right? It's, it's not the same justification that George Washington or Thomas Jefferson gave. As in, honestly, I wouldn't go so far as to make that argument. Lah. It could very well be just the US, right. let's say, but I wouldn't criticize the, en- the entire philosophy just because of that one instance. And I feel like... Um, the whole point of having these kinds of philosophies underpinning your constitution is to ensure that they do not change over time. To ensure that like um, a, a tyrant like Trump cannot easily just um, abrogate a constitutional provision about immigration policy. But, but, where, but where's the balance there? Yeah. Because, I mean, society does evolve, right? So, mm. like, shouldn't values and norms evolve with society? Shouldn't our laws yeah, evolve in society? Yeah, they should. But the thing is, yes, values might change and they might evolve, but the philosophy that underpins uh, 
uh, constitution usually does not change quickly. So right. like, I, I would go so far as to argue that social mores with regard to, say, acceptance of the LGBT community, it can change within one generation. It can change within drastically within two generations. But there are underlying things like uh, considerations like the, the need to preserve traditional family units, um, the need for to preserve social order and some kind some sense of community and belonging to it, given Singapore's like diverse population. These kinds of things don't just erode very easily. And I guess the same can be said for the US Constitution as well. Even if I guess some things might perhaps be misinterpreted in a new context and stuff, it doesn't change the fact that the, the underlying rationale for having certain philosophies just don't change much. So if the rationale for having um, a more communitarian point of view in Singapore is, is our history and our context, my question then would be, how different would Singapore look under liberalism if, if we prioritise liberalism a lot more? Honestly, if we're talking about liberalism from the start, we would be fucked. Why? I'll be honest. But why? Because, because back then, people um, were more divided along ethnic lines, or at least were more vulnerable to being divided along ethnic lines. So, um, I guess... Just made it easier for people to just uh, between communities. So you're saying that the ability to self-actualize your hatred towards other communities would have destabilized the nation. As in, like it's all probabilistic at best. Right. But what I'm saying is that, given um, given Singapore's demographics and the fact that if we self-implode, there's no chance of us surviving because we're not like the US, then we're dead lah. So of of course, Lee Kuan Yew couldn't take that chance. And therefore, he enacted a lot of strict measures to ensure that we always prioritize staying together as a nation, as opposed to like, oh, your own religious community can do whatever the fuck you want to self self actualize. But that obviously assumed that we had a leader that uh was was capable of doing all of that, lah. Right. The the fact is that mm. when you talk about communitarianism in many other contexts, in many other countries, it it didn't go so well, right? It it didn't mm. investing a lot of power in one person didn't quite pay off. But if you think about it, the quality of the leadership is going to affect the way a country is being governed regardless of what political system you work in. I mean, for instance, you just look at how Trump is operating. Like, right. given the But the I would rather Trump for 8 politics, years than Trump for 80. I guess. Yeah. I guess that's what we're hoping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm... I'm also inclined to believe that um, the leader who manages to cement his position for 80 years, if you want to put it that way, often has some degree of performance legitimacy as well. Because right. if you look at the history of China, for instance, all the dynasties had been overthrown because the leaders were extremely oppressive. They were all peasants that rose up against. I, I don't think that a, a, <laughs> a Trump would exist for 80 years, you know? I, I agree with you, Unless but doesn't he was the, actually doesn't good the existence stuff? of of peasant revolts and rebellions seem to indicate that there is some value to liberalism, right? These peasants value their freedom. They value not being oppressed. And so they they uprooted the communitarian way of life to yeah. in favor mm. of, their, of their personal freedoms. It's not a one or the other thing, right? There is a, mm. there is a kind of tug of war between these two ideas. And it's almost as though one is a correcting mechanism for the other. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, which is why oftentimes when we debate, the debate is less of which polar opposite should you support, but more of where the balance should be struck and why that's optimal. Because if you think about it, it's the same way when you talk about things like communism. There's no actual communist state out there. Same for liberalism. Or like even democracy, participative democracy. I don't think that the US is fully democratic. Oh, I, I love the fact that the, the US is actually labeled a flawed democracy by the democracy index, which I absolutely love. Like like it's one of those <laughs> yeah, trivia facts exactly. that, I, that I like to pull out where I, where I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's my point. So oftentimes you won't find a country lying at one end or the other. It's just not often nowadays at least. I think every single right has limits. Or at least I cannot really think of when a right is so fundamental that it is sacrosanct. And I know that, you know, there's this whole Ashish Kumar lecture about some sacrosanct rights. But mm. by and large, the kinds of rights that are, that are being discussed um, in secondary school debating rest upon mm. pillars mm. Of, of things that have, have limits. So when you try to defend a right to its absolute, like right to choice, or right to freedom of speech to their absolute, you will never win. Because there is no absolute mm. ability to defend these rights. The question is, how do you show that your motion or, your, or the action that you're taking lies within the acceptable parameters of where this right reasonably holds? Will you agree with me on that? Yeah, I think honestly this just goes back to more of the first things that we talked about, which is the need for characterization. You, you cannot tell me... Um, why I should side with your principle or like your your understanding of this world if you don't tell me how this world really looks like. Because what people are currently arguing is they just throw out that stock argument. This is the principle and this leads to this outcome. This is good. But oftentimes when people run those arguments, my next question is, but at what cost? Right. So if you just bite the bullet, I guess some coaches would use that term, bite the bullet right from first speaker and say, okay, so we acknowledge that there will be certain trade-offs that we are going to make, but my next few substantives will deal with why these trade-offs are worth it. Right. Then you don't have to wait for your whip to come out and try hard to do it, right? I mean, that's the it point. It makes because, your case Because like, if you think about it, correct, there, mm-hmm. is, there is no way to prove, there is no reason why you have the, an argument about the right to choice. There's just no need yeah. for that. Right. The question yeah. is not is the right to choice important. It's how far does it extend? What's the trade off, yes, and exactly. are we willing to take it? So why 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 not just make it your argument, right? Instead of yeah. instead of defending the right to choice for three minutes and then your opponent going yala I I know um, what, I okay, know what right about hate la. speech fake news ah, yeah, yeah. and then and then you you just basically wasted three and a half minutes doing absolutely nothing. Why why, why do that? You know? Exactly. And it keeps happening yes. over and over again in the debate circuit. I I had a question for you, which was that do you think that laws are a reflection of public morality? That's a very loaded question. I mean, obviously it is, but the question here is to what degree, right? Right. (laughs) Okay, I have this theory. Please hear me out. I think that there is no substantive definition of morality. So instead of defining this is the hallmark of morality, Morality tends to be construed negatively. So that means you cannot infringe on my freedom of speech. Right. Because it would be immoral. Right. But what is moral, we don't actually know. Right. So it's a kind so, of it's a kind of like a we know what it isn't, but we don't know what it is kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So, um, in light of this, laws are enacted to ensure that some semblance of morality is preserved. But they do not determine what your rights are, what your moral rights are. Of course, uh, this is where I, maybe as a law student, would want to draw a distinction between constitutional law and other forms of law. So, um, constitutional law, as uh, I hope some of the kids would know, would be a higher law. It's like a, a law to constrain the government. Right. Or like the law that, that supersedes all other laws. If anything is unconstitutional, then it's not valid. Right. So, yeah. It's one step away from being God's law, essentially. Uh, and then criminal law is like a step below, I guess. Uh, I think that uh, it might be interesting to note how constitutional law tends to be a very negative in nature most of the time. So sense? they would. Um, so even if it's framed in a positive way, like oh, you have the right to bear arms, or you have the right to freedom of speech, like they, how to say, they are quite declaratory in nature to me. And the offense comes in when you violate it. Right. So that kind of defines like the, the so-called morality, but it does not actually explain the degree of freedom of speech that, that would, uh, that would be considered moral to grant whatsoever. So right. this to me is the reason why a lot of times, um, people face struggles trying to get laws that require the government to take positive action to protect certain communities to uh, elevate itself to constitutional status. So, for instance, like the Equal Rights Amendment, it seems very easy, right? It's just, oh, let's ensure that the government protects females or, or males, I guess, in some instances, from discrimination based on sex. It sounds easy, but this imposition of a positive duty to to do something to protect people just it does not necessarily follow that this is part of morality because morality is often negatively construed. So this is my theory for why the Equal Rights Amendment has not been passed even after so long. Another theory that I, that I have, I guess, is that societies cannot um, collectively demand this like, imposition of a positive duty to protect you and at the same time condemn a government that is heavily interventionist. Right, right. Because if you think about it... Um, because like you, you can intervene say that, to protect oh, people, what, right? Yeah, and then you as a member of society be like, why do I have a government that's meddling in everything? So where's my freedom now? The paradox right. exists there. Right. So, but people want both. And that's why debate exists. People want both at, at different points of time, right? Based on what their needs yes. are. People are yes. surprisingly malleable when it comes to uh, supporting things that helps themselves. So now we move on to the more casual pet peeves segment and this is where we talk a little bit about you know just the more mundane stuff about the debating circuit debating in general that annoys you or pisses you off as an i'm pretty sure that the pet peeves i have are not unique to me of course okay i have an issue with judging <laughs> I knew <laughs> like it. most people like most people like most people i knew you were gonna go there okay i'm gonna give you the time should i, should I come back in like an hour <laughs> I will explain as objectively as I can. Okay. So, judges all have different judging philosophies. Yes. And I'm not saying that one form of judging is, like, less legitimate. And I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart. Right. I think that there are, there's, there are many different ways in which people can judge debates. But the thing that, I guess, irks me 
is when judges believe that the best way to judge impartially is to be a robot. So that means they just track as much as they can, be as mechanical as they can and be like, okay, this team said this, that team didn't respond, blah, blah, blah. It's like basically a radical WSDC judge with minimal to no intervention. To me, I do not stand for that because I feel that the judge is not only supposed to be a reasonable person, but a reasonable and intelligent person. So if you are going to come up with some kind of wacky principle and be smug about it, thinking that, oh, the other team didn't know how to deal with it, so I'm definitely going to win because the judge cannot step in. Um, I'm not saying that I will always give this team the loss. That's not true, even if I don't buy their principle argument. But I'm saying that I just don't like this attitude that some debaters have, and some judges are, are just complicit as well in facilitating this, this, this kind of shitty discourse. That's partly because that's what we teach, what? You know? Until you're 18, the format that you use is WSDC. So when, when people when people do judge training, for instance, that's what they teach the, the judges. What, right? And that becomes a kind of institutionalized um, bias that is, is, is not easy to fix. I personally think that judges should step in a bit. Okay, I know that this sounds very bad. Like, this is framed in a very poor light, I know. But I personally believe that a judge cannot always take things at face value. So if a team is running something that's so-called wacky, very novel, then they need to pay very close attention to the way they run it and ask questions when necessary. Don't just, like, make assumptions or, like, run with it. So I, I personally endorse the view that judges should always be skeptical rather than accepting, you know? Like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess they said this, they said this. But for me, I, I just ask a lot of questions when I judge. La. Like, okay, you said this, but isn't the underlying assumption this? And then the team will be like, but the other team did not point it out, so you cannot fault me. And I'll be like, yes, that might be true. If this is very damning, I could easily give you the loss for that because I'm not persuaded. If it's not damning at all, then, okay, you'll still win. But you can kiss your high speaks goodbye, lah then don't come and fault me for that. And I guess I'm just that kind of judge. I mean, I'm a bad judge, like, according to you, so... <laughs> yeah, and according to the green hat girl. <laughs> according to the green hat girl uh, at, at, in, in Vietnam. Um, oh, God, that was... That was terrifying. Um, uh, I, I, am, I, I am quite curious, though, about whether you think that this problem is something that is endemic to the Singapore circuit or whether you think that this is something that you you see elsewhere as well? Is it more of a local thing or is it more of a... I'll be honest, I think it's difficult for me to evaluate properly because usually the reason why I get angry at foreign judges for an entirely different reason. And what is that? (laughs) It's just bad judging. (laughs) It's not even about... It's not even about different judging philosophies. It's just bad judging objectively regardless of which metric you use but, so like they don't even so, listen to your case properly they step in for other teams those, those kind of things I, I don't want to I don't want to offer too much of a challenge to that because I have seen bad judging as well but I mean if debate is a persuasive sport right and, and it is at its core fundamentally subjective and you're meant to convince a person about your opinion being more correct or your or your argument being more correct than your opponent's then do you think that there is this um, problem in terms of labelling the inability to be convinced as bad judging? No, as in, 
Okay, of course, this is subject to everybody's own individual discretion. But I personally think that while I have a duty to convince the judge of my case, the judge also simultaneously has a duty to convince me of their verdict. So it's about going in and attempting to be as impartial as you can when you listen to the OA. So the judge has to explain why they were not convinced by saying, oh yeah, you did not answer this question that I had. And I think that this is a reasonable question because blah, blah, blah reason. And I guess if I reasonable as a debater, I would be able to accept that, yeah, perhaps there were holes in my case that made me unconvincing. But unless these questions are provided and justified by the judge, I would just presume that, oh yeah, this judge wasn't listening. This is the, the, the eternal tug of war, right, between you and the uh, the, the, the debaters and the adjudicators because they're trying to suss each other out and, and figure out who is reasonable in and it, sometimes it's impossible to actually come up with a concrete answer to that right which is why the best approximation that people have is things like judge feedback but at the same time of course you know I do think that one of the problems with, with judging as a whole it's not really the problem that you raise um, although I do agree with you in some cases, especially, I, I especially agree. I think my agreement with you fluctuates with how many judges I get in a tournament. <laughs> so, um, what I wanted to say is that I think part of the issue here is that judging is not seen the same level of priority as debating. So, like in an in a equitable world, the balance is struck because the judge is giving you their score and you are giving the judge his or her score and those scores are valued equally because the judge wants to be a breaking judge and you want to be a breaking debater or a good de- good judge and a good debater right but that isn't the case at least not in Singapore debating it's not seen with the same with the same gravitas as debating is mm. so whatever feedback you give a judge the judge might not necessarily care and often judge feedback is also viewed to let's just say not very positive lenses right I, I know of people who would discard judge feedback entirely right and I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not I'm not a saint here. Hawaii invites some random school with some random coach gives you a judge feedback, that thing is being taught, you know, sliced apart and being put in the bin. Like I, I do feel that, you know, when judging isn't valued that, that highly, right? And judge feedback isn't treated seriously. And sometimes judges themselves don't care about feedback because judge breaks are not are a bit of a joke. Cause you either break because you already have friends in the judge pool or you don't really want to break anyway because breaking just means a Sunday that you just come in and especially if you're not an independent judge, right? You're not even getting paid for mm. any of this. Then the, the whole culture that is created is not one that values judging and not one that states that judging achievements are particularly credible, right? Mm. And when you do that and you create this mm. imbalance, then you're naturally going to have a system where there is this disjoint work because there, there is no equal check and balance between debaters and judges. Would you agree with that? Yeah, but I honestly think that even though it could be a systemic problem because cronyism, I guess, um, I also think that it is by and large an individual problem because people just don't see much like glory in judging whatever. They just do it for money. Right. I mean, that's true. But I mean, is, is that really the case overseas? I feel like there's that a lot of people value being like you know a judge break o- overseas. They think that it helps them build their CVs, or they think that it's it's equally valuable. It gets you on like edge core committees for like learning leaders tournaments or whatever. Judging is really just this tag on lah, you know. 
in Singapore debating. And perhaps that, that that is a culture that needs to change. And how how that culture changes, I'm not so sure. It could be from the ground up. It could be with initiatives from the debate association or, or elsewhere. Or or it it could be um it could be the owners of individual tournaments to to value judges enough to make to create a precedence precedent where judges are credited properly and given due recognition and essentially make ju- judging lucrative. La. Mm, I agree. I don't know. I don't know. Any, any other pet peeves? I also have a pet peeve when it comes to going up against opponents that run stock arguments. Like, it's just very lame. And it's very, very pet... It's very, it's very lame. Uh, and I know that me saying this makes me sound like an extremely petty person. Especially the person that I'm going up against is a kid. Like, what else does a kid know? The kid knows the stock argument that the coach has taught him or her. And I can't fault the kid for that. But I guess... The pet peeve really, really comes into play when I go up against debaters that are more experienced and they go up with like stock arguments. And I'm just like, uh, I feel, and I could be wrong about this, but there's actually quite a sizable number of coaches that perhaps are not very well equipped to inculcate those kinds of skills because of the way that they have been brought up as debaters. But it's a demand supply problem, right? There's just not enough debate coaches. Uh, or at least there's space in the market for coaches who are not very good or like not very well equipped. Yeah, for sure. Because there's just more schools that want debate teams than there are good coaches and that's just the reality mm. of, of yes, it all. That's true. In fact, I would also like to point out and this might be offensive material because yeah, maybe you can insert a trigger warning here. <laughs> but I feel that there is a pretty sizable number of debaters in Singapore that debate not because they actually like debating but because they place their self-worth on it. And as a result of that, it makes them very um, resistant to constructive criticism. I'm not accusing you of anything, don't worry. But what I'm trying to say is that if a lot of people believe the things that you believe, which is that judges are bad and they're just, you know, not very qualified and they're giving you bad verdicts and stuff, does this sort of conflict with the fact that people themselves are resistant to constructive criticism and therefore tend to see judging as bad because of this resistance. I think it really depends on each individual, right? I would say that for myself on a personal level, I won't deny that I am resistant to some degree. But I would confidently say that I am not resistant to the extent that I don't grow at all. Because even though I complain about some judges, I think my personal motto is that there will always be something that you can take away. Hmm. In the optimal scenario, it would be because the judge has given you great insight. So I would praise the Lord for having a good judge. If I get a mediocre judge, I'll be like, okay, maybe I should have been a bit more clear about certain things because they didn't catch it. If I get a poor judge, I'll be like, okay, this person was a complete idiot. But perhaps maybe I should learn not to do certain things like that if I were judging or not to run certain kinds of arguments in a particular way because they're difficult for some people to understand. Right. So there's yeah, always so a learning opportunity there. There will always be something. And in fact, right, even for some judges who are ludicrous to me because it's like they, they prejudge the debate, you know, they step in expecting teams to run something and I get pissed off. So I say, that's a bad judge. But it does not necessarily mean that I cancel them because there are moments where in giving feedback, the judge says one or two random ideas that are unrelated to the debate that are kind of cool. I'll be like, okay, I guess I'll just keep that in mind. 
some moments like that also matter to me. And I think that my growth as a debater, particularly in NUS, is testament to this mentality. But you are also saying that for a lot of people, there is this resistance lah, for other people. Yeah. Do or you, some people are just too ready to, you mentioned to self-worth, use the rap right? card, you know. I, I understand that. You mentioned self-worth, right? Yeah. Um, how do you think this affects your ability to listen to feedback or constructive criticism? I mean, if you're asking me on a personal level, I don't think that I, it I'm not asking me very much. Level. I'm just saying mm. on a theoretical level or based on the people that you are referencing, right? how does self-worth affect your ability to... to, to to receive constructive criticism. Because obviously, I feel like a lot of kids who are listening, they do have some, you know, inferiority issues or ego issues when it comes to debating. Lots of kids, lots of young debaters suffer mm. from that. I I, I, mm. I know, you know, I was there once, right? And and I think being aware of how this affects your growth is super important. So I was hoping to understand, you know, how, how the two sort of... Um, affect each other. Yeah, I mean, when we're talk- even when we're talking about people who suffer from like self-esteem problems, there's also a spectrum. So on one hand, there will be people who are like, like they're very humble, they're very, they're very humble. And for every piece of constructive criticism that they receive, they feel very bummed out because they're like, oh no, I'm still so far away from getting to, to becoming the kind of debater that I want to be. And then I think that this impacts them in that it affects their ability to think straight. Because every time they are faced in a new stressful situation, like, okay, what did my coach say? Or like, what happened? What was the judge feedback that was given to me last time? And blah, blah. That is a result that they just, they just become so overwhelmed by their own feelings and their fear of failure that they become unable to think clearly. And to me, thinking clearly is the most important thing when you enter a debate. I guess my advice to these kids is to just... Okay, it's easier said than done, but you must always be conscious of how you are feeling. And this is not just advice for you to grow as a debater, but also advice for you to grow as a person. So I think personally that it's very important for you to know when you are feeling in a particular way and know how it is impacting the decisions that you make and the way in which you you do certain things. So if you are conscious about the fact that maybe you get anxious every time you see a new motion and it is because of some kind of past experience you had, then you need to take active steps to try and control those emotions. Focus on what's in front of you and just evaluate things on a clean slate as best as you can. So other groups, other parts of the spectrum. And then there are others who cling on to debating really tightly because that's kind of the only thing that they can do. And I'm okay, there will definitely be individuals that come from uh, diverse backgrounds. People might do that because they are outcasted in school and they don't really have that much else to do. It could be because debating happened to be that that one spark in their life, you know, they realize that they are quite good at it. And they receive validation that they don't otherwise receive from other parts of their life. So they cling on to it. And as a result of that, it becomes more of an emotional attachment and a commitment as opposed to like a, a hobby a sport so when you become so emotionally invested in these kinds of things you prioritize like your feelings the euphoria that you feel when you win the the anxiety during a round and that sadness that washes over you when when you fail or when you feel like you have failed your teammate as opposed to the actual criticism that you receive from a judge who tells you how to be better 
And a lot of the time, these things are subconscious. You don't realize it. You think that you are taking down notes, but how much of it are you internalizing and how much of that can you then apply into the next debate? You need to realize that even in debate, there are a lot of things that are out of your control. So you might get a judge you don't like because the verdict did not suit your interests or the way the judge gave the OA was not uh, was not good in your opinion, whatever. But the reality is that because a lot of things in your life are uncertain, including debate, you need to learn how to find like contentment, satisfaction in just being who you are. And if it is based on some metric that you have created for yourself for some reason, it puts you as inadequate. I guess just be okay with it. It's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Right. If I can add on to that, right, I feel like for people who debating has become such an intrinsic part of your life and you validate yourself based on debating because your friend, often it's not because of the actual skill itself, but because like you find a community that you feel like you belong in through debating. And you and you like winning. And you like winning. You like being you like being surrounded by people who egg you on and make jokes about how you're good and you won this last tournament or you broke at whatever. Yeah. These things make you feel good. But if you think about it, in the long run, you realize that you are determining your sense of self-worth and like A4 theory, right. your feelings and emotional development on other people. And because the people who determine your growth as a debater and how many rounds that you can win are all outsiders. Yeah. And I don't see why that should matter or why that should change you as a person. And I I, I think that these people should know, especially if they're ext- extremely young, that I don't actually think that the outsiders that egg you on and say, oh, you go, you can win this or... I don't think a lot of them actually care if you win it if you win tournaments or not because exactly they don't they really don't right people who don't have that sense of valuing yourself due to the they just see it as banter right and they see it as just part of the fact that we're all friends and we're all part of this community and we can joke about these things but there is this destroying between the fact that they're joking about it and the fact that other people are treating it very seriously. And I know this is a long process of sort of dissociating yourself from that, but it's incredibly important that you realize that perhaps what you actually value when you join this activity is not the winning itself. The winning is a byproduct of the fact that other people have egged you on, said that you are good and, and that you can win. But the reason why you may have joined it in the first place and become so enamored to it is because of the fact that you found yourself within a community where, you, yeah, you're decent at it. You'll win some rounds, you'll lose some rounds. Maybe you'll break, maybe you won't. You probably won't be the people who are com- who are completely lost, right? Especially if you, if you are in debate long enough, right? Maybe you won't... Break every tournament. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll stay a novice for a number of years. I mean, I was a novice until like <laughs> last year, right? Same. Right. And and and, and that's. I think you have to realize that that's like okay. And as long as you have that passion for it, and you like the people that you're that you're surrounding yourself with, and you have that community, that's what's healthy about debating, not the constant pressure that you put upon yourself just to validate these feelings of, of self-doubt, you know, because th- those will never go away. You win one novice tournament, the next thing you know, you want to win a major tournament, or you want to break, you're, you're, you're break in an in a open tournament. You break an open tournament, next thing you know, you want to go to the WUDC. You go to the WUDC, next thing you know, you want to break at WUDC. <laughs> then you suddenly must win. It'll never end. It'll never end. Yeah. Right? And, and at, at some point, you have to stop yourself and think, okay, but why the hell am I doing this? Because I guarantee you, no WUDC winner 
right? At least not that I can think of, right? Won WUDC off the back of, of feeling like, oh, this is my ultimate lifelong ambition and I'll stop at nothing until I get there. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also like to point out to the listeners that oftentimes the healthiest relationships that you have with other debaters in the community will probably involve, um, rather than egging the person on, it's more of <laughs> bringing up embarrassing moments that have happened in their debating <laughs> career. Just the way me and Dion joke with each other. Since when did we brag consistently about breaking at certain tournaments? We did not. <laughs> we always we, focus on the do, embarrassing moments. Even when we do win tournaments, it's an embarrassing <laughs> moment for us. <laughs> <laughs> eh. <laughs> uh, the context is that we won NTUDC's novice. No, first of all, novice already, so already embarrassing. Last year. But we won it on no, a 3 2 split against um, <laughs> Sick Twist. So. <laughs> I still don't think the judging was legit, but. So these are the kinds of friendships that you should aspire to have. Not people who do nothing but constantly motivate you and enable you in your. Right. I don't know. Yeah, your toxic behavior. And that people who you should surround yourself with are also probably people who don't only talk to you about debating. Like, they actually care about everything else in your life as well because they have your overall welfare at heart beyond just debating. And if every single conversation is one about debating, then you might need to consider whether that's uh, a symptom of how you are communicating to other people or how other people are communicating to you. Because I know that there are some people out there who, like, others who will just talk about debating 24-7. And, <laughs> and and um, they're not even aware of it that they're, they're doing that you know and uh, that's something to, to at least keep in the back of your mind as well if you are if you are a kid who's going down that path of saying that talking about nothing but debates you know uh, start being a bit more start having a life 